You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. Comics are the most fascinating, charismatic people in the world, probably barring the Pope. They can really manipulate your moods in a way that is really incredible. TV writer, producer Betsy Borns, today on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. You know, stand-up comedy has become such a staple of American entertainment that we may forget that it wasn't that long ago that it was a much more rarefied profession. And we may also forget just how hard a profession it is. In the late 1980s, just a few years into this comedy explosion, a young TV writer-producer named Betsy Borns put together a book describing the lives and professions of these funny men and women. She called her book Comic Lives. So here now, from 1987, Betsy Borns. How would you describe the book? It's not really biographies, per se, and it's not really a documentary. Right. It's kind of a, uh, a docudrama, as they say in TV land. Um, it's, it's really about what it's like to be a stand-up comedian, a look inside the inside world of a comic. And I think the best way to describe the way it's laid out is that the reader should imagine themselves as... Uh, the lazy Susan in the middle of a huge table surrounded by comics. And every time someone speaks, they kind of swivel around and go, huh? And uh, they get to hear another point of view. I could, I could easily envision uh, 60 Minutes or 2020 and cutting from one shot to another. Maybe that's your television right. influence. Right, exactly. I tend to think about food more, so I'd say Lazy <laughs> Susan. That shows my point of reference. But uh, it's really about, um, obviously, comedy has exploded in the last couple of years. Um, and the book is an outgrowth of that. I sort of, everybody I meet, it seems, either wants to be a comic, has tried to be a comic, knows a comic, their mother's a comic, their, their brother is trying to be a comic. And I wondered what it was that was going on in society that is, is making everyone obsessed with either being or watching a comic, and what's going on with the people which is making them want to be comics. But it's, as you say, it looks so easy. No yes. one thinks they're not a good comic. Right, exactly. As as um as Jay Leno says in the book, being a comic is 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 like being funny is is like having sex. No one thinks they're bad at it. Everyone thinks, as he says in the book, so I'm fat and acne riddled. Well, once I hop in the sack, I'm great. It's the same thing with being a comic. Everyone thinks they're funny. Everyone thinks they can be funny professionally. Um, but as Stephen Wright says in the book, being funny is very different from being funny at 9 o'clock p.m. every night to 300 people who you don't know, especially yeah. when those people might have had too much to drink and, and be waiting with uh, harpoons in the wings for you. It is a lot tougher than it looks to get up in front of a room full of strangers or an auditorium full of strangers. Right. And make them laugh. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's hard enough, I think, to get up in front of people and, and sing um, Bicycle Built for Two and, and have them respond. But to get up and say, okay, what I'm saying is more important than what you're saying, so please be quiet. And what I'm saying is so fascinating that I want you to listen to me for an hour and laugh hysterically whenever I want you to laugh every 10 to 15 seconds. Okay? Ready. And uh, that's very difficult, even under the best of circumstances. And under the worst of circumstances, a truly great comic can manipulate the audience in such a way that uh, they'll laugh in spite of themselves. A lot of comedians have a, a, a shtick, a thing that, that, that you know, uh, I don't know, is the, the, the Stephen Wright, that, that kind of a... The a, hook. Yeah, exactly. Right. That. Um, as, as, you know, 
their hooks are less important today, I think, than they were originally. You used to have comics running around saying, get me an act, get me a hook. Um, today, it's more, I, I think, actually, um, there are certain styles that are more prevalent. People have a character that they might perform in or a certain persona. There used to be just kind of one persona, and that was the guy who ran around saying, ah, oh, my mother-in-law is so fat. Today... You have, um, you know, people like Emo Phillips who perform in, in character. These really, you know, he says in the book, um, I asked him if he ever wanted to have children, and he said, no, with my luck, he, they'd tr probably turn out to be the Antichrist and grow up and make my head explode, which I thought was, I hope that he was in character. <laughs> um, and then, you know, Judy Tenuta's character is someone who gets on stage and says, hi, pigs, and then proceeds to insult people the rest of the night. Hey, pigs! Yeah! You know, people like Howie Mandel, who's just the zany character who puts a rubber glove on his head. Um, but most importantly, I think comedy has developed into something that's very first person, very I'm going to filter the world through my eyes. And you have people like Jerry Seinfeld and Jay Leno who really tell the truth in such a way that you kind of hit yourself on the head and go, gee, he's right. I never thought of that. Yeah, me too. And uh, they make you laugh at it. See, that's the trick men do. Men will always demand a lot of attention no matter how stupid or insignificant the job is being done. See, any woman here, let's say you're married, maybe you're a mom, you have kids, you take care of kids, you the kind of thing every day. Women don't necessarily talk about it every night. But your average guy will get up at 12 o'clock Saturday afternoon, put a doorknob on. Honey, come here! See that knob I put on today, huh? By laughing at it, you realize its truth and possibly implications. As George Carlin once said, it's stuff that you knew was funny, you just didn't remember to laugh at it. Right. <laughs> Acts don't tend to be as filthy anymore as they once did. Right. I think television, or I know television, has a lot to do with that. Um, a comic has got to work clean if they want to get on television. Uh, and if you don't get on television, your price in the clubs doesn't go up. You can work. There, There's a club circuit now, which did not exist before. In 1980, there were approximately 10 paying clubs in the country. Today, there are over 300. So... Um, in order to play that club circuit as a headliner, you've got to have a TV credit on something like Johnny Carson or David Letterman. And once you work as a headliner, you can make about $1,500 a week. That's the bottom rung. And uh, travel the country 52 weeks a year if you want. 53 if you want, but it's kind of hard. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you, you have to get on TV. And, and if you are seen by a television producer and your act is dirty, they immediately think, the guy, you know, this is a hack comic. They they can't get a laugh without using a bad word. So you've really got to write enough clean material to get on TV. I have to confess, I must have listened to hours of Stephen Wright, even on his album. Right. Before I finally heard him live here in Washington last summer utter one word we couldn't say on the air right, right. now. Right. Yeah, he's a totally professional person. I think his mind works. He's very similar off stage. Um, to the way he is on stage, but as he says, on stage he is himself times ten. You know, he usually speaks like this, but you know, he really does it a lot more on stage, and he has a clean mind. And if we can't hear him, it's because he's in parentheses. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> of all these people that you interviewed, I mean, it's probably like asking which is your favorite child. But did you have a favorite, the, 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 a person that you really wanted to spend a lot more time with, and you just? You couldn't pull yourself away? Yeah. Um, I think every comic I, I would have to physically tear myself away from. Comics are the most 
fascinating, charismatic people in the world, probably barring the Pope. Um, and incidentally, a comic opened for the Pope in San Francisco, which I think is pretty unique. But um, they're all incredibly charismatic people who talk about themselves and, and in such a way that they are so compelling and fascinating. And they, having practiced in front of an audience for so many years, they can draw a person out and really manipulate your moods in a way that, that is really incredible. Um, but, but I think some of my favorites are Richard Lewis, who is, calls himself, you know, the comic from hell. And, um, he's just one of these bizarre people who has, who is this neurotic, uh, psychotic, uh, crazy person on stage. And, and then you talk to him off stage and realize he is the exact same. <laughs> I'm just a little paranoid tonight. I, ha I haven't performed in a couple of months and, uh, and yet, hey, I'm paranoid about everything in my life. Even at home, I, on my stationary bike, I have a rear view mirror, which I'm not thrilled about. <laughs> There's the phenomenon, isn't there, of the overnight success. Somebody who has worked their way. <laughs> they've been working for years right. in clubs and in, you know, in front of little crowds of three and four and five people. But suddenly that one appearance on The Tonight Show or whatever, and suddenly it's this brilliant young new star. Right. It happens all the time. Um, well, one classic example is, is Stephen Wright, who was working a club in Boston. And the producer of The Tonight Show was taking his son uh, through Boston to look at colleges, stopped in a comedy club, saw Stephen Wright, said, you're on. Stephen Wright did The Tonight Show. It's his first, first appearance on national television, and uh, I think you're going to find him a little different. Would you welcome Stephen Wright? Thanks. <laughs> And the first night that he did it, he was nobody. He had never done any television. The first night that um, he did the show, uh, he was supposed to walk off after his act. And Carson started motioning for him to sit down at, at the uh, chair. And uh, he didn't know what to do because obviously that never happened. So finally he went over and he didn't know what to say. He was humiliated. And he did great. Did they uh, just let you out for this evening? Uh... Uh, yeah, I have an hour left. That's... <laughs> And the next week, he got a call before he left L.A. They wanted him on again. And after that, he was, you know, a national headliner. That was it. After this short break, Betsy Bournes tries to explain why audiences will suddenly turn on a comic. Now back to my 1987 conversation with Betsy Bournes. But it's almost, it, it, it's also like, like the deodorant commercial. You can never let them see you sweat. Right. Um, unfortunately, I've seen comics drenched on stage. Sometimes they just can't help it. Um, people are, the audience is like a shark um, going through the water. And the minute they sniff blood, they go in for the kill. Uh, and, and comics know that. So they really have to hide that. People, what, ma what makes us that way? Well, I think it's it's a feeling that that I discuss in the in the chapter on audience reactions to comics. It's a feeling that we as an audience are totally placing ourselves at the mercy of the comic. The comic can manipulate our moods and take us through uncharted waters. And when we see that comic going off into the land of Oz or something, we say, "Wait a minute! I I, I thought this was going to be a fun night. I don't want to be Alice in Wonderland." And 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 we react. And also sometimes if the comic steps over the line of good taste. 
people draw the line. Um, and a comic can sense that. You know, the comic can talk about A, B, and C, but when they start talking about something that's a little too wild for the folks in Peoria, then people just screech to a halt. They, they don't want to be confronted with that. Is it too much trouble for a comic today to try to come up with different material for different audiences, or do most comics have basically the same routine for everyone? Well, some com it depends on the person. There are some comics, like Larry Miller, who, who I talked with. Um, he's done every TV show successfully, from Merv Griffin to Johnny Carson to David Letterman to, you know, Dinah Shore. He's basically done everything because... He doesn't write different material, but he will edit the material that he has according to various audiences. And in the book, he talked about how there's a joke he does where he makes a slight reference to a license plate and the fact that it says Landa Lincoln on it. And, and he says people would laugh at the use of that for the Letterman show, but when he did Carson, he specifically deleted that line. He also talks about how comics edit down to a sentence, then down to a word, and down to punctuation points. And he says that uh, he's always surprised when people don't realize that because they would never go to a poet and say, gee, what'd you put that comma in there for? It's just like they, they assume the artist knows what they're doing. Comics also say the letter K is funnier than C. Um, according to David Brenner, four is the funniest number and uh, Guam is the funniest country. <laughs> so words are very important. Maybe it's hard to put your finger on, but what would be the one major difference between artists such as Stephen Wright and Nemo Phillips and Richard Lewis and, and all of the ones that you talked to, and Jonathan Winters, Milton Berle, the old school? Right. Well, in the case of Milton Berle, he stole a tremendous amount of material, so I think that would be one of the, uh, one of the main ones. Jonathan Winters is a genius and, and is definitely um, in the same class, I think, the same, on the same level as today's comics. But generally the difference between the comics today... Um, and the comics of 30, 40, 50 years ago is that today's comics write their own material and they write it with their point of view. Um, they used to buy material and it would be material written for their persona. You know, Henny Youngman's persona, take my wife, please, but ump, but ump, but ump. And you could basically plug in a punchline into the structure that he needed and that was it. Today they write their own material and they write it with their point of view as opposed to their own caricature. Um, and they have pretty much um, a lot of freedom within that character because the, caric the character is generally of a real person who you can relate to. As a whole, are these happy people? Yeah, you know, I, I think that comics are love-starved, uh, insecure people. But then again, I think I am, and I think that most people I've ever met are. Uh, I think the main difference is that comics say, hmm, I, I'm insecure and love-starved. I think I'll go in front of an audience, and that'll be the solution. Honking the car horn amazes me. This has got to be just the last living brain cell in this guy's skull that comes up with this idea. I don't understand. It's so awful. She's on the street. He's in the car. Beep, beep. You know, Ivan Boski had to uh, rip off millions of dollars to, to, to find his solution to the problem. Um, everyone has their own way of dealing with their own neuroses, and I think comedy is the comic's way of doing it. And they realized at a young age that this is what they're good at. As Carol Siskin said... Um, she remembers being five years old and sitting at a table and saying something cute, and everyone said, isn't she sweet? And she doesn't even know she's being funny. And she said, I knew exactly what I was doing. I was working the table. <laughs> so uh, they, they pretty much know. I, 
I think it's like a boxer who is in an argument, you know, when he's a young kid and punches someone and goes, oh, I win. That's how it's done. A comic tells a joke. Everyone loves him. And that's how it's done. You were with Saturday Night Live. Yes. You're not anymore? No, I was. That was my, my first job out of college. Um, was I was desperate to work in comedy somehow. So I started at Saturday Night Live, and, and I was there for two years and was the assistant to the executive producer. During the good years? or During, during the, the, I think during the... Uh, the middle class years, we'll say, euphemistically. It was actually, it was very interesting because when I got there, it was right before Eddie Murphy's first movie came out. And when I left, it was, he was huge. So it, I, I got interested in stand-up from watching him perform. And I thought, my God, look what happens when he hits the stage. And I thought it was a function more of his fame than of the comedy. And I started going to comedy clubs and realized that it wasn't a function of his fame. It was a function of the humor because people responded that way to almost all comics with this kind of adulation and, and total feeling of love. It's just that with Eddie, it was on a, a mass level um, because he had such exposure. But, um, you know, also it was interesting to stand next to the executive producer during the show and watch how comedy is done. It's thought out unbelievably it's like planning a nuclear war or something which often it resembled on the air um <laughs> and complete with mushroom cloud and um so that was that was really fascinating to see how it was done and then that that just sort of developed into my obsession with comedians after comic lives was published betsy borns went on to work on shows such as roseanne friends and all of us among many others and you can get a copy of Comic Lives by clicking on the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. We have several interviews with well-known stand-up comedians. For example, my 2013 interview with Jim Gaffigan. You know, it's interesting, the large family thing. And, you know, obviously we've jumped the shark in many ways. There's a curiosity about how many kids people have. And my 2012 conversation with Gilbert Gottfried. When I do The Tonight Show... It's like people's favorite part <laughs> is not the bit so much, but when You're you just... screw up totally. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us everywhere that you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, a few thoughts on where America stands today on race and culture by the son of an African-American icon. My 2007 interview with Paul Robeson Jr. Instead of looking at people from the point of view of their culture. We are more than any other country in the world obsessed with looking at people through the lens of race as skin color. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.